Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking with Britt Guerin about the ways in which weight stigma impacts folks in bigger bodies, which is an aspect of our clients that we very seldom acknowledge or bring into the counseling room. We'll be using a health at every size lens, which, as many of you may know from our episode with Kelsey, is a social justice movement to support people of size and compassionate ways of taking care of themselves. While haze is a great starting point to reduce weight stigma, it can lead to healthism, which is the idea that you are morally better if you're healthy or pursuing health. Britt's going to speak to the ways that this can show up in the counseling room and how to meet clients where they're at. So I'll start by telling you a little bit more about Britt. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in kinesiology, as well as a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. She is a certified ACSM exercise physiologist and a trainer for the Size Inclusive Fitness Training Academy. She co-owns Current Wellness, a wellness center in downtown Raleigh with a mission to activate inclusive wellness for mind, body, and community. And I've heard so many great things from people who have been to Current Wellness, so that's amazing. As a licensed therapist, Britt specializes in working with folks who are experiencing anxiety, disordered eating, disordered exercise, and trauma-related symptoms. She uses a health at every size approach, a somatic lens, and the principles of intuitive eating to help clients create a healthy relationship with their body, food, and exercise. She is trained in embodied recovery for eating disorders, as well as EMDR for trauma-focused therapy. I am so glad you're here, Britt. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. How did you get into this business? Like what made Health at Every Size and fitness slash counseling? What happened? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Yeah, and I think part of my like joy, part of my reaction is like, like, I just feel so grateful to do this work. Like, I mean, feeling emotional as I kind of reflect on this, like it just feels so meaningful. Um, And I feel like grounded in, not to say I get it right all the time, but grounded in meeting people with dignity. Like I just, it just feels so meaningful and nourishing to me. And it, it keeps me energized in work that can really be a big source of burnout. Right. So how did I get into this? Well, um, I was very steeped in diet culture as a teen. (laughs) Um, and which I mean, who isn't truly like if they, if they aren't like, Oh, that is amazing. Um, and grew up playing sports when I quit sports, my body changed and I was like, Whoa, how do I, how do I keep the body I had when I now, now that I don't play sports. So I got into fitness, I got into teaching group fitness. Um, and like, there's a part of me that's like, no, you got into group fitness cause you love teaching. And I'm like, 
I got into group fitness to stay thin, like truly. And like, maybe there's, there are two parts in there. There are two parts for sure. Um, cause I still teach because I love it. Um, so, so yeah, um, diet culture kind of led me to the fitness industry. They are so interwoven. I had a really good mentor at Penn State who kind of was dropping these like anti-diet nuggets without ever saying the word anti-diet. I don't even know that she knew what she was doing, but she would be like, hey, so we don't, when we're teaching group fitness classes, we do not talk about food and burning calories. Oh, okay. That feels important. You know, and just these like amazing nuggets of wisdom that I learned at, I guess I was like 20 years old and just kind of that felt part of my fabric um, as a fitness professional. And I just, then I took it to James Madison University where I was a grad student. And then I took it to NC State where I was overseeing the group fitness program. And then I took it to Flywheel Sports where I was overseeing the, the instructors there and just, um, but I, ke I kept growing and building on top of it. Um, I met Kate Sutton and she told me, have you, have you read Health at Every Size? I was like, what's this? And then I was just, I was hooked. I was like, this is the language that I have been operating from without knowing what the language was. And, and still didn't know a lot because clearly I read Health at Every Size by Lindo Bacon and didn't know that there was diet tips in the book. Um, so, so yeah, and I, I think over a process of a couple years had seen problems within the fitness industry that weren't quite sitting well with me. Um, the exclusion, exclusionary nature of fitness fitness and wellness spaces are very white, very thin, very, you know, affluent. Um, and they're not accessible in a lot of ways. And just was like, you know what? I love fitness. I don't think I'll ever leave fitness, but I really need to add on mental health. Um, I went back to school and I went to NC state and, um, yeah, had a, a really amazing internship at CSERC. Have you heard of CSERC? Yeah. Love CSERC. That really brought in a lot of the race, the racial considerations that I had been missing. Um, I grew up in an all white town and had huge blinders on. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just, it just feels, I don't know, like a part a part of me, I guess, big part of me. Cool. Okay. Well, this is again, like a very kind of personal topic for me, as you may have noticed in some of the questions and comments that I sent. So I'm very excited to talk about this. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what health at every size is and maybe some of the historical context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So before we had health at every size, we had the fat acceptance movement. Um, fat acceptance movement or size acceptance movement um, in like the 70s and 80s. And these movements were really about, um, well, first of all, they were started by people who identified as fat 
and um, black folks who identified as fat. So the intersection of race and size. Um, so it was really kind of a grassroots movement in that way. And it was about improving the quality of life for, for fat folks or uh, people of size. And then I think in, well, first of all, visit as does website, the um, Association of Size Diversity of uh, Size Diversity and Health, if you're really interested in the history, because they have like a seven part blog post about the history and it is juicy and rich. It's really, really good. I went down a rabbit hole last night. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like around like nine, the nineties, um, there was a shift towards health at every size as basically a model of care. Um, not only a way in which we can improve our quality of life, but also improve our health, um, and like pursue health. So we have that kind of mm, subtle transition. Um, and I think also in the subtle transition, it went towards, it shifted towards like providers really taking on health at every size as a, as a way of caring. And then Lindo Bacon wrote the book, Health at Every Size in 2008. Only 2008. Wow. Yeah. I did not realize that. I was surprised. I thought it was in the nineties, but yeah. Um, yeah, so they don't own health at every size. <laughs> they wrote a book called health at every size in my, I'm not, you know, the expert on Hayes by any means, but in, in my relationship with health at every size, Lindo kind of like popularized it and, and kind of helped integrate it into mainstream culture or more mainstream, getting it closer to mainstream. Um, so that was my first introduction with health at every size. I kind of thought like, oh, Linda, Lindo is the creator, um, which is not the case. And that's why the article kind of talks about how that is problematic. Actually, when I read the book, I, well, let me back up. When I read the article, like you were saying, and they were kind of pointing out that there are these like diet tips in, in the book. I was like, what? Like I read the book, but I don't remember seeing those diet tips because at that point of my stage of learning, I wasn't, I couldn't quite discern the difference at the time. Mm -hmm. um, if I read it now, I would probably easily spot it. But so I thought that article was, was really helpful. So yeah, then we have ASDA, the Association of Size, Diversity and Health, who trademarked health at every size. And interestingly, the reason that they trademarked it was to prevent companies in the diet industry from co-opting health at every size. What a good move, because boy, will the diet industry co-opt some health and wellness content. Absolutely. You see it everywhere. like All, all the time. Anytime you see something about like intuitive eating for weight loss, that is like Noom. Right? Noom. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's not a diet quote, <laughs> like, but it actually is. Um, so yeah. So ASDA is a really great resource. Highly recommend checking out their website. Um, and they kind of, I think they, ASDA really brought brought back the origination of the size acceptance movement as, um, you know, its original purpose to remove barriers for people of size to pursue health, 
while also liberating people from the responsibility to pursue health, right? So it's like health, health should be available to all, but it doesn't have to be an objective for living. You're not, you're not morally superior if you are pursuing health or, um, and also health is a continuum and it looks different for everyone. And it's, it's, you know, for example, um, it's accessible in a very different way for an able body person versus a disabled body person. What are some of the barriers? We'll start with like barriers to health maybe, since that's what health at every size looks at. But what are some of the barriers to quality of life for folks who are in bigger bodies? Yeah. So um, I think this is important for me to name like thin privilege or straight size privilege. And I identify as being straight sized. And so um, there are things that I, if I didn't do this work, I wouldn't have to think about. I wouldn't Mm. have to think about is that chair going to hold my body? I wouldn't have to worry about fitting in spaces between, you know, chairs and rows in a movie theater. Um, I've never worried about going to a cycling class and how I, you know, can't navigate through rows and fitting on a seat, um, airplane seats, right? All these things environmentally that thin people, straight sized people, just, it's, it's really not a concern. Um, so I think that's important to name and acknowledge when we talk about health, there is so much weight stigma integrated into the medical industry. You know, they, in this kind of context, they call it the medicalization of fatness. Unfortunately, I hear this all the time. It's so common that someone who is in a larger body goes to the doctor and they are one, it could be something like experiencing an earache and all of a sudden their doctor is like, Hey, have you, tell me about your exercise. Have you considered exercising three days a week for 30 minutes? And it's like, well, wait, I'm here for my ear. How does that have anything to do with my ear? And they may already be engaging in exercise, you know, but the the lens at which the doctor is looking through is like, you're in a larger body, you must not be exercising. Right. And your body is therefore a medical problem. Right. Right. And I'm not even going to listen to you and attune to why you're even here. Okay. So that feels like maybe an important thing to name is, is there's like at least two parts to that interaction. There's the part where the person's presenting issue is maybe not even taken very seriously or acknowledged without also acknowledging body size. Um, But then there's also this sort of moral judgment that, you know, the person should be moving their body more. And because if they were actually doing that, their body would be smaller. And then kind of the next, sometimes the next phase of that for folks of size is, um, okay, well, I actually have been engaging in exercise. Let's say they're not there for an earache. I have been engaging in exercise. I, um, I'm in a lot of pain and when I, and I, I've been gaining weight and I'm engaging in exercise. Like, what are you going to, what help me, right? They're basically saying, help me. And they, so there's the piece of like, weight loss, 
uh, intentional weight loss isn't always effective. It's not an effective um, intervention. And, you know, the, the medical care, the medical model is like putting the onus back on the patient. Well, it's, it's kind of like, you're in charge. It's your behaviors. You know, you must not Mm -hmm. be doing it enough. You must be lying. You must be lazy. Like all of this bias um, really gets in the way of, of folks care. And it's so like you're identifying the individualistic nature of that. The assumption that the only thing that would matter to health is, is behavioral choices as opposed to context and, you know, environmental pieces. And so, yeah, I mean, I hear how just so much can be missed when focusing on body size is just kind of like the primary determinant of health. Another thing that stood out to me about this healthism at every size article uh, was just the discussion of what it means to be a good fatty versus a bad fatty. So I'm wondering if you can kind of tell me about how this sort of expectation of health and wellness you know, what are some of the pieces that make someone good or bad at being in a bigger body? Pretty concisely, a good fatty is pursuing health, health, health promoting behaviors, and a bad fatty is not. So a good fatty is going to the gym, a bad fatty is not, you know, Um, and then you could kind of add on tons of examples from there. And um, I really think about, you know, these ways in which someone in a larger body is perhaps engaging in these behaviors as a way of protection. Mm, Not from a place of I'm interested in this. It's a values driven choice. It's just, I want to deflect whatever judgment might be coming my way. Absolutely. Yeah. Ouch. Well, it's interesting because, um, there was this concept of assimilation that was brought up in the same article. And I recently started rereading um, Stamp from the Beginning um, by Ibram X. Kendi. And uh, it brought to mind his discussion of assimilation and uplift suasion, um, this idea of what it means to be like a good Black person. And that required that you're pursuing white virtues. So education, money, social standing, um, but all while acknowledging that you should never really be on the same playing field as a white person. Um, so I'm curious if, if there's that flavor also to uh, attempts to be a good fatty, is that like you could work as hard as you want, but if your body stays the same, ultimately like you're still going to be at a lower social standing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think about that assimil- assimilation as a protective measure, right? If I can get closer to a privileged identity, then I am less at risk of racism, sizeism, ageism, you know, what have you. If I am saying like, screw it, like I'm gonna, um, let's say, enjoy a burger and fries in public as a fat person. I mean, that takes possibly potentially where, depending on where that person is coming from, that takes a lot of boundaries to, to kind of just, you know, stay within themselves and not think about the outside world potentially 
judging or shaming as if Mm -hmm. that's wrong of them, that they shouldn't be enjoying a burger and fries. Yeah. And I'm connecting too with just, I mean, the amount of emotional labor that that would entail. So like Mm -hmm. what you're naming is the sort of potential preparation for, okay, let me get geared up for what someone might say um, Mm -hmm. or the looks I might get. And Mm -hmm. then on the other side of that, you know, if you do get those looks, if you do get those comments, then you have that to deal with. But then if you don't get those looks and you don't get those comments, I wonder if there's also this sort of like gaslighting feel of like, well, I mean, was it all in my head? Should I have put all that effort in? It just sounds exhausting. Yes. Yes. A lot of labor, a lot of emotional labor. It's a good way of putting it. Well, kind of a follow up to good versus bad fatty. I'm curious if you can share some client examples of my guess is that there's uh, like a different presentation, a different set of issues, depending on sort of how consistently you've been in the same body. So, you know, like what's it like to have been a fat person all your life versus like gaining weight at some point or being in a bigger body and then losing weight? Like what are some of the trials, tribulations that folks come in with depending on their body size? I think one pattern that shows up pretty consistently that is important to name is a lot of, let's say like the majority of my clients talk about, let's say they're, they are in a larger body and they talk about the often traumatic experience of their parents putting them on a diet at a young age, mm-hmm. eight, nine, 10 years old like going to Weight Watchers with, you know, a parent. And so there, so when we think about attachment figures, so there's already this formation of an attachment figure to diet culture, which I have to give credit to my supervisor, Heidi Anderson of um, Reclaiming Beauty. She's out in Asheville, who's really helped me think about through this attachment system. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's super helpful. So when we think about like, let's think, let's stay with the parent for a moment. So the kid loses weight, then they receive love, praise, attention. They don't lose weight. Then they receive, you know, disappointment, shame. And so what's starting to happen is, unintentionally, also important to name like parents are doing their best with what information they have, but they're starting to create conditional, conditional love, conditional safety, you know, like there are conditions at which our relationship is positive. Mm -hmm. And that is based on how hard you work to be smaller. And, and then the, the formation of the attachment figure of diet culture, you know, and just think about like, for you, I mean, you said this is personal, like what if you follow the rules of diet culture, and diet culture has resources to offer you, like, what do you get? If you are following the rules, Candace? Um, if I what do I get, I get a, a feeling of satisfaction, I get a feeling of competence and mastery. I inevitably don't measure up to the goals. And so then I start to feel really guilty. 
Yeah. So I get a lot of push pull, but some really powerful positive reinforcers. Yeah. Yeah. So you're already naming like when it, when it works, when I'm, you know, losing weight, mm-hmm. I get all this good stuff. When I don't, then, you know, I'm, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm guilty. I'm not measuring up. And like, I mean, kind of sounds like an abusive relationship. It. I mean, when you say it like that, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of developmental, you know, wounds, trauma that happen for folks of size. That is definitely a consistent theme that shows up. But then when we're talking about, let's say folks who lose weight, they, um, you know, they were in a larger body and they're starting to get closer to this quote unquote thin ideal with this presentation, a lot of times it's never enough for them. Mm. It's like, it's not, um, Another another shout out to Rachel Lewis Marlowe of Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders. But she, she'll she say, you can never get enough of something you don't actually need. I need to pause with that. And okay, you never, you can never get enough of something you don't actually need. Wow. That, that may have just been life-changing and I'm not even sure how, but continue. <laughs> yeah. Just let that integrate. Let that right? marinate. <laughs> yeah. So, so if it's, if it's I'm losing weight, I'm losing weight, I'm losing weight. It's just, it's never enough. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you actually searching for? Maybe it's a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's, it's safety. So it's not, it's not the weight loss. That is the thing you actually need. You need as I can, I can exist on this planet and belong and be safe. But the belief is that the only way I get to that is with a smaller body. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I see a lot of like, it's never enough. I also see um, clients who talk about positive, the, you know, like you said, the positive reinforcement that they get when they lose weight, the compliments, and actually how activating that is for them. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, well, one... I wasn't getting those compliments before. So my, my body was bad before Two, What if I gain it back? Oh yeah. Which ha- often happens, right? Because intentional weight loss is not effective. It doesn't work. So there's this, this activation that my clients experience when they're getting compliments And actually, you know, they're also getting complimented for a restrictive eating disorder. I mean, one, I think like if anyone listening wants to take one thing away is like, just refrain from commenting on someone's body. Like, just don't, don't say anything because we are just contributing to this appearance focused society that is objectifying and, and reinforces this, um, our value and our worth is steeped in with our appearance. I'm curious about how that also might show up in a session. So let's say that a client has engaged in some intentional weight loss, has noticed some changes, gets a compliment, can't receive it, or it's activating like you describe. I wonder, does that create at all a crisis, especially if this person is ultimately using 
a smaller body as a proxy for acceptance or love, like I would expect that like a compliment might feel like acceptance might feel like love. But what do you do with that dissonance of like, I think I got what I've been working for, but it doesn't feel good. I think some pe- I think there are people who can take that in and are like, oh, that was the thing. That was the thing I was really wanting. And then you just want more of it. So you keep working harder and harder, I guess, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not from this, that was enough. <laughs> you know, there's still anxiety and kind of frantic nature about it, perhaps. Um. So what about folks who maybe have been, and this I feel like is sort of what kind of applies to me, I guess, is like the folks who have been in a, I think you said straight size body, like kind of a normalized body or an acceptable body or whatever for most of their lives. And then they gain weight. Um, something that showed up for me is, is like, I, I didn't realize how many sort of fat phobic beliefs I had until I was in a body that no longer felt acceptable. So what is that journey like for folks that you've met with? What, what comes up is, oh, wow, like I'm in a different body and I must get back to the body I was in, you know? And so there's those behaviors or, um, yeah, whether it be dieting or exercise or whatever, to try to get back to that size. And oftentimes it's like you, you gained weight for a likely a good reason. Like our bodies change throughout our lifetime, you know? Fair, fair point. Yeah. I made a couple of humans and my body. Yeah. What what do you know? (laughs) Right. You mean your body isn't like it was when you were 17? Weird. Right. And I didn't realize that I believed it should be until it wasn't. (laughs) That was a shock to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm having curiosity on like what, if you want to share, like what did. Oh, I'll share. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What what was that like or what came up? Um, I mean, just like every sort of uh, hidden disordered eating practice, not, I guess not orthorexia because it really wasn't like illness focused, but just, you know, I would get in these patterns of, I'd work out really hard. Predominantly, I would work out in the ways that I used to be able to work out before I was pregnant. And then I'd get injured (laughs) because my body was not ready for that. So then I'd, you know, I'd stew in the guilt and the frustration while I'm trying to recover from this or that injury. And then I tell myself I'm easing back into it, but I'm really not. I'm still going too hard. Um, And then I think what was conflicting for me was that like, my body was different, but I was still straight size, right? Like I could still go to a store and find stuff. I just wasn't in the shape that I was used to being in. But yeah, it was just, I I truly thought that because I had never historically dieted, I had never over-exercised, that those were not things that lived within me. But it only took a, a relatively slight body change to realize that those things were very much in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about what Rachel would say from her embodiment lens and the way that I'm bringing curiosity in is like, 
when our body changes, our container, if our body expands, our container has to expand as well, Mm -hmm. like our somatic experience, our somatic container. And so sometimes it takes time to adjust to that. So instead of obviously society is going to perpetuate like, well, we should just get rid of it. We should just get smaller. The work of embodiment is finding that expansion and actually embodying your new body, like inhabiting yourself. Whoa. Okay. So again, this is now just turning into my personal therapy session, but, um, I mean, I think part of what being in the smaller version of me afforded me was not having to take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And so get a bigger body. And now the psychological, emotional implications of that are you either have to take up more space or you have to get back to a body size that allows you not to. Yep. Ooh, I got some more work to do, Britt. (laughs) Yeah. We all do. That is the most human thing you can say, Candace. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and if I do bring it back to, you know, how many moms I've worked with, because I mean, I think that's that's the area that I've both with moms who have experienced bodily changes and size changes, that sort of thing, but also with folks who have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just a game changer to think about that from this embodied perspective. When our body is under threat, the, the, again, the survival, we are wired for survival. We're going to leave it. We are going to disembody. We are going to dissociate. It's, it's a threat. I'm going to leave, of course. So as we think about what are some of the mental health concerns, and I think we've already, we've started to touch on it, but uh, maybe we'll dig in a little more. Uh, what are some of the mental health concerns that show up due to not just being in a bigger body, but actually experiencing fat phobia and healthism. That's actually even a good discernment. There's a difference in what it's like to live in a larger body versus what it's like to experience weight stigma. And there's a lot of overlap. I actually have a client who will say like, you know, she has these um, insecurities around body image, but she was like, I actually have never, like no one's ever bullied me. I don't have any experiences of like someone saying something mean about my body, but it's the fear of it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know what our society is capable of because you've seen it happen. So you know, I think that's interesting to think about. Like some people haven't maybe directly experienced it, but they know what could happen. So there's a lot of fear. You know, weight stigma is a form of trauma. It, you know, any sort of oppression is a form of trauma. So any mental health concern that can arise from that depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, eating disorders, disordered exercise, right? All of these things as an expression of, I'm again, bringing in Rachel because she's in my head because I just spent five days with her, um, <laughs> which I always want her in my head and in, in my pocket. Right? She's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's these are um, expressions of dysregulation in the nervous system. It's like, something's not right. Like I am under attack. What do I need to do 
to survive. Diet culture and the um, worshiping of the thin ideal is telling me something is wrong with my body. So therefore I don't belong. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a physical trauma to the body, but also a developmental trauma to our sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like from that attachment perspective, we might expect folks who have specifically experienced weight stigma, particularly in early years to maybe show some of the same sort of, you know, behaviors and relational patterns as, as maybe anyone who has experienced an intense rejection or a conditional nature to love and belonging from a, a primary attachment figure. So I'm, especially since you're just super steeped right now in that embodied sort of approach, what does an embodied approach look like to working on those kinds of attachment wounds? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about the defense action cycle. I forget who created that. I think a white man. A white man created. We could assume a white man if it's a psychological theory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um so so we have to, you know, perceive the threat, react, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, move through that that reaction, but then we have to move and and like what's called like neurocept safety. Like we can't just leave the threat. We can't just leave an abusive relationship. Then we have to actually integrate and find safety and land in, you know, a sense of belonging. Is it a community that is attaching to body liberation, whether it be in person or virtually? Fortunately, there's a lot of virtual communities to belong to in that way. Um, So... Yeah, I think like reorienting to a different attachment system, um, which is sounds way more simple than it actually is, right? There's a lot that goes into that, a lot of like building boundaries and um, probably going but back and forth between the two. No, but I want the diet culture, maybe body liberation. No, but I want the diet culture, right? That push-pull um, So I think that's a part of it is orienting to safety. Um, And then, I mean, really just increasing embodiment. So from the embodied recovery lens, um, recovery from an eating disorder is the process of embodiment. So it's not, it's really coming back to your body, inhabiting your body. Sometimes it has to be very slow. You know, we can't do it all at once, particularly if we've left our body for a very good reason. Um, so kind of like, yeah, having compassion for like, of course you left your body. It, it feels like, you know, threat, um, but slowly starting to come back. That might be like noticing your fingertips, you know, noticing parts of your body that don't really have a narrative. You know, we're not going to go right for the, for the stomach you know, but maybe, maybe like the taking your, you know, finger to your nose or, um, yeah, like if it feels okay to kind of rub your, rub your jaw, something like that. I'm just thinking about how do we come back to our body in a safe way. 
as you're talking about embodiment, there's just a very sensory component to it. So, I mean, I hear how, you know, just kind of test driving some very minimal tactile sensations. And my assumption is that the end goal is to get to a place where you can stay in your body and where you can like nurture your body, befriend your body, you know, really sort of tend to it rather than feel it as an enemy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this kind of brings up the body positivity movement in my mind. Okay, jump in. Yeah, I have so many feelings. But I want to start with your your knowledge. We'll get to my feelings later. Okay. <laughs> okay. Your feelings are important. The body positivity movement is, I'm sure, well-intended. And there's a big difference between being positive and loving your body and being thin and positive and loving your body and being fat. There's a big difference. In some ways, you don't have to love your body to nurture it. Like you don't have to love your body to respect it. Um, So for a lot of people, what feels to go from like scared of your body or like, like body phobic to loving your body, that's like too much too fast, like not a chance. But if we can start to interact with our body in maybe like a neutral way or like from a, you know, a 10 out of 10 of body phobia to like a nine, okay, we might start to see some shifting. It's a very slow process. But um, yeah, the body positivity movement, I think also it's like, it's kind of like thin white women co-opted the fat acceptance movement and made it body positivity. That's kind of my understanding of it. And I mean, I think to get to my feelings, um, (laughs) I think part of what shows up for me too, is how much overlap that body positivity has with good vibes only performative allyship of like, particularly when people with privilege, I think white women, I can speak to that kind of experience when we're confronted with, um, something that we have done or said that is oppressive, that is harmful to someone with less privilege, that sort of urge, you know, let's don't, let's don't bring in the bad vibes. Let's just all be chill. And so that sort of dismissive, uh, let's just all stay positive, uh, and how harmful that is, how invalidating it is and how sort of fragilizing it is for the person who's doing it. You know, you're, you're telling yourself that you actually can't handle criticism you can't actually can't check out your own mistakes that you just have to be positive all the time. Right. Yes. How dismissive. That's such a great word for that. And it's not to say that thin white women can't struggle with body image. Right. It hurts right? everyone. It, yeah. Yeah. They absolutely can. And it's different. You know, like I, I think it's, tone deaf to publicly post, you know, a, a little belly roll and talk about like loving your belly roll. I think that that might be personal and really helpful and compassionate to that individual, but in the greater context, it, it comes across as tone deaf. In sessions with clients who experience this, I'll get to what I'm describing, like 
my hands are out right now. Like I just want to hold the anger that my client of size is feeling when they are in a larger body and their thin friends are engaging in like fat talk. You know, they're saying how fat they are in front of their actually fat friend. And just, I mean, my eyes are wide right now. Like, uh, like, please understand the, I know their intention and please understand the impact of that. I'm curious kind of along that thread, are there other sort of um, aspects of sort of the counselor's physicality that are important about bringing this embodied approach uh, to whether it's trauma work, uh, whether it's, you know, body image, healing work. Mm -hmm. So working, I am working on my own embodiment. Mm -hmm. My embodiment as a therapist is, is I'm I'm basically a Mm co-regulator for my client. And so if I can model regulation through like resourcing my body, like I'm just going to shift right now in my chair and like find the back of my chair and like my hands kind of need something to rest on. I've got a pillow underneath me. Oh, and wow, there's, there's more breath in this moment. Like if I can kind of be that, model or co-regulator that really is, you know, fostering their ability to come into their window, window of tolerance, you know, they're not alone. Um, And kind of like for some clients, depending on what's happening, something I learned from embodied recovery is like taking a yoga strap and like I'll hold one end and they'll hold the other end. And, and, you know, I might kind of facilitate like, go ahead and just, I'm going to hold it and go ahead and just kind of pull however soft or hard you want, just enough so you can feel me on the other end. That way, like, oh, like, yeah, it's like, you can, you can feel me here. Like you can see me, you can hear me and you can feel me. And that is a, in, in a lot of ways, it's a really helpful way for them to, if they're in the moment, metabolize grief. Cause they, again, from embodied recovery, like you can't, you have to metabolize grief in relationship, in attachment and safe attachment. So that's one example of how to like facilitate an embodied experience if I'm not selling embodied recovery, I don't know I'm what I'm like, doing. Where do I sign up? Oh my gosh. It's life changing. It it's life changing. Like it. And I mean, it's interesting because like as you're naming showing up with so much more, you know, of your physical presence in an embodied way. I mean, I feel myself kind of like, uh, <laughs> but I was so comfortable you know, being present in session, not just intellectually. I mean, I'm there emotionally too, but like you're talking about bringing my body in and I start to feel a little pullback, not totally, but like, it's just so interesting to notice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, um, folks, for clients who are sensitive 
they have a sensitivity, they might feel that. They know it's there. Yeah. Yeah. They know, I, you know, I don't like this. My butt, like my, I am withdrawing because I don't like this. Right. And then you're kind of like, in some ways, colluding with like, oh yeah, we shouldn't talk about that. Let's not bring that up. Let's not talk about bodies. Yeah. Even if you're in a thin or straight size body or other um, privileged identity to show up as a human allows them to kind of find you and also show up in a more human way. It's so interesting because this feels like it ties into something that I, I do a lot in supervision with folks, which is trying to reconceptualize countertransference as something that is actually potentially very important and very useful. So when you're having a feeling like a pulling back or like you feel yourself kind of glazing over or you feel yourself wanting to be super directive because you had the same experience, like that might just be an indication that you're really connected to that person's experience so much so that it's pulling on your own. So like, can you live in that space? You know, can you let that be informative? So sometimes when I'll feel that sort of like, Ooh, I'll try to name that is like, wow. I mean, I feel myself trying to like pull back from that. It's like the intensity of it is just really noticeable. So mm. trying to use the, the discomfort as a tool, I guess, instead of as a barrier. Yeah. Right. It's, it's more information. I love that so much. And, and then what, um, what I might add to that is like, wow, I'm, I'm really feeling myself pull back from that. It's like, it's like my, my chest is collapsing. I'm going to go ahead and find a pillow and like put it behind my back so I can find my center. Cause I want to be here. Yeah. I want to be here and hold all of that. Like, that would be adding in your body and modeling, resourcing your body because your body is a tool. I mean, it, it's such a tender thing to hear because it's like such mm -hmm. a generous way of being. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I just the compassion of it is just like really resonates, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this actually maybe does kind of go back to the attachment piece because something that showed up for me as you were talking about kind of going back and forth, like between diet culture, body liberation, that sort of thing. I've had a lot of clients over, particularly white clients over the last couple of years, you know, since the summer of 2020, a lot of very visible violence against black people. So a lot of conversations with white clients about how frustrated they are with their family because of their family's sort of perceived racism and sort of unacknowledged privilege. So basically the client has had some sort of awakening or consciousness raising experience, and now they have this relational crisis. So like, how can I know what I know now and still be in relationship with a racist parent? So mm -hmm. to bring that into this conversation, I'm wondering what it likes looks like for folks to be in a bigger body, be working toward body liberation, but still have this very complicated relationship with a primary attachment figure who maybe really got the ball rolling on how bad they feel about themselves. And that perhaps dieting was a main tool of bonding. 
What do you do now? You've lost that love language. Yeah. How do we interact now? Yeah. So I'm just thinking about, I hope Rachel listens to this and is just like. I will email her and tell her that this has been recorded. (laughs) Yeah. Like slightly embarrassed how much I'm quoting her. Um, But she, she is, she has such a amazing way with words that really land for me intellectually, but also in my body. That's probably why I can remember all these quotes because I feel like they're like seeped in my body. Um, But I'm thinking about this uh, quote with Rachelism of like the process of change is to change the process. And so if the process of, you know, bonding and interacting was over dieting, well, wow, we need to change the process. We need a new process of interacting and naming, which is so hard. I mean, it is so hard for a parent-child relationship and any relationship really to be like, hey, I know we've been doing this thing for 30 years, but like, can we try something else? You know, like, whoa, that's big. And so I'm sure it's titrated and it's a, a long process, but um you know, I, I think I had this conversation with my mom. I don't do anything slowly. I'm just like, boom, <laughs> like, Hey mom, I am learning about health at every size. And like, here are all the things that look, I know you meant well, but these things you said and did had an impact on me. And like, I still love you. And I want to be in relationship with you in a new way. I mean, that's just who I am and how I, how I do things. How was it received? So um, over, I think I've been doing this to my mom or like communicating this way with my mom for a long time. And so she's getting better at like, I think the, probably the first time was like defense, like her defense system was up real hard. And so I had to learn to kind of like collaborate with her defenses a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course you were telling me that I needed to watch what I was eating because you were trying to protect me. You thought that was the best thing for me. And we have new information now. And like, I want to let you in on that. Um, And so she's actually a way more open-minded than I ever thought she would be. If that gives anyone hope. Yeah. I think that's so important because I, I mean, I think the fear is that you're going to come in with this new way of being and are just going to, understandably your fear is that because you're not doing things the way your parent taught you they should be done, that you're immediately just going to be rejected for it. Right. Right. And I mean, I'm also coming from a place of I'm straight sized. Like she presumably isn't worried about my health, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's that. I have that privilege. I'm a fitness professional. I'm a therapist. Like I'm, I'm very resourced in that way. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine it puts me, it sets me up for success in, in ways that people don't necessarily have immediate access to. And some parents, I mean, I've worked with clients who parents are just not having it. Parents, partners, friends. I mean, they are just like, absolutely not. That is, I am not buying into that. That is incorrect. We know that B12 
being quote overweight is bad for your health, you know, and they just kind of double down on the, the diet culture language. Um, and so then it becomes, well, it's not, it doesn't have to be your job to change their mind. Then it becomes a practice of boundaries and how you, yeah, create boundaries to create resilience around those sources of threat. So it's so difficult to be in relationship with someone who can be a source of safety and a source of threat at the same time. Right. Like that disorganized attachment. Um, yeah, it's hard. Something that was showing up as, as you were, you know, describing this, um, place that it's helpful to get to if we don't get the reaction that we want from the attachment figure, whomever they may be, this sort of like, okay, well, it's not my job to change their mind. Something that I find shows up with a lot of clients. And again, like my point of reference for this one is more like trauma. So they're, they're um, particular types of trauma. Um, so, you know, their parent has been abusive in some sort of way and they're trying to figure out if they need a relationship. What, the place I've kind of come to is that what seems to make the difference between being able to get in some sort of acceptance around how your parents are versus staying in a space of resistance um, is mm -hmm. whether or not you can parent yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you mm -hmm. still feel like mom has got to pick you up from daycare before you can be all right, then it's going to be really hard to just get on board and adjust your boundaries as needed with the parent you have. Yeah, that is, I feel that. I don't know. I'm just curious about like when that shows up, when they, a lot of their inner child shows up in relationship with a parent mm -hmm. and they're likely not going to get their needs met. And so, yeah, that reparenting piece. Wow. That's, that feels like a crucial ingredient to what we're talking about. Yeah. I love asking <clears throat> folks like what, what is your inner child? What are they still longing for or yearning for? You know, that just, what need just really never got met um, and how else might it get met? You know, how can you offer that or how can other, you know, sort of chosen family offer that. And that's something that I've really had to adjust to. Cause like my individualism shows up in that, that it's like, how can you do it for yourself? And it's like, well, uh, maybe you don't have to do it all. Maybe there are people who are willing to support you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's you and others. That, yeah. I, we kind of got into this a little bit, but I really love to bring in any sort of tools that particularly counselors who have some aspect of privilege, you know, tools that can really concrete ways they can assess their own bias. They can work through their own blinders, you know, and be more effective than at broaching at connecting with people who may have less privilege. So as you think about working with folks who are in bigger bodies, what are some concrete things that particularly counselors who are in, you know, thinner, um, thinner bodies, what, what can they do to build their toolbox? A big, an important variable in that question is where the client is on the trajectory of 
having a death grip on diet culture to, you know, loosening the grip and maybe grasping on to body liberation. So where they are in the journey makes a big difference in how we might meet our clients where they are. If someone is, has a death grip on diet culture, I'm not going to be like, Hey, have you heard of health at every site? You know, that's too much, too fast. It's almost dismissive of their yearning for weight loss. Um, now, when we have the framework of health at every size, that is crucial to not collude with diet industry, with diet culture. So like if I didn't know about health at every size and they are saying, I really want to lose weight to improve my mental health. I'm just going to hold that as a truth. Like, I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, that that sounds important to you. You know, what goals do you have? Yeah, you know, I might just kind of stay with that instead of, oh, it sounds like, you know, you have this belief that weight loss will improve your mental health. Where'd that come from? You know, just kind of posing a question to get them to explore and wait for a window of like, you know, let's say they're really like, huh, where did that come from? Oh, there's your window of like, yeah, this is, this is everywhere. Like it comes from you know, TV and, and movies and social media and teachers and doctors. And like, actually, have you, have you heard about health at every size? There's like a totally different way to care for yourself. You know, so, you know, I think we have to know, we have to have the Hayes framework to not assume that, yeah, let's help them lose weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one and a big step, a really important step, because I'm sure they're just like parents. There's tons of therapists who just don't know about Hayes and are just going to help them try to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Um, and don't understand how damaging that actually is. Um, if they, if they are more in an active stage of starting to resist and set boundaries, then I think there's some grief work in that. Mm. Like, you know, I I don't, this isn't concrete. I'm sorry. You asked for concrete. No, it's totally, but it's super helpful. Okay. Because even just naming, like, I mean, I don't think grief would immediately show up as something that I would want to process if someone's in a body liberation space. So I think, yeah, yeah, Yeah. fear, fear and grief. What are you you grieving a smaller body that you might have had and don't have anymore or might have never had, but you're yearning for grieving that. Um, So I think that's an important piece. And then again, in the defense action cycle of like, then what do we move towards? Where is that safe attachment? Um, Finding a community who is, yeah, really, really resisting um, the thin ideal. Um, Maybe another concrete way is like defining other ways in which their worth could be defined and and their Mm -hmm. value. Um, and then uh, embodiment. I mean, there's so much that goes into embodiment, but like really 
And I think therapists need training in this. I wouldn't know how to facilitate embodiment if I hadn't taken this training, but really facilitating the shift from experiencing our body as an object, shifting to inhabiting Mm. our body. Mm -hmm. And that again, takes a lot of time. Um, But that to me feels like what I've seen in clients is the most transformational. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean we don't need these other things. Like we need knowledge, you know, you need to know why would I even consider health at every size? So I resource sharing is another big thing that I think has to kind of be in place if they want that. I mean, I'm never going to force that on a client. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to help them lose weight, but I'm also not going to, because that's unethical to me that that would cause harm, Mm -hmm. but I'm also not going to force them into health at every size if they're not ready. Well, speaking of, of resourcing, um, we'll wrap up with this. Uh, If there's one book, so maybe we'll be, you'll be the the person who offers a life-changing book suggestion. (laughs) One book kind of in in alignment with this body liberation approach, this embodied approach that you'd recommend for a counselor, what would it be? I'm going to recommend a book that I haven't read yet. That sounds like something I would do. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my supervisor has read it and um, it's kind of, I think the book Health at Every Size is important. And the next layer to it is, it just came out, Reclaiming Body Trust. Um, So again, that's, yeah, it's partly that in body work, coming back to your body. Your body is a beautiful resource and has so much wisdom. Hmm. I love connecting that, that concept of wisdom to the body, you know. Um, I, I noticed this morning, actually, it was funny because I I feel like I've just recently gotten to a place where, you know, the way I move my body has really sort of leveled out. Like I only do what feels good and when it feels good. And I was thinking about I had a, a kind of what felt like an odd craving for orange juice and because I don't usually like a lot of juice. Now, you know that about me. Um, and I was like, you know what, body, I trust you. And that was like the first time I had like kind of like said that out loud to myself and I could feel my body just be like, finally, (laughs) finally, you're listening. We've been waiting for this. (laughs) I love that. It was really cool. And then I, thankfully we had some orange juice. So I drank some and it felt great. (laughs) Wonderful. Something inside you told you, I want orange juice. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, I am just so grateful for this conversation. My goodness. Thank you so much, Candace. This was fun. I, I before before uh, I jumped on the call, I told my partner, I was like, I get to talk about my work. I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're just like right in your purpose, right? So, yeah. so thank you for the opportunity in the space. That is our show for today, folks. I'd love your feedback, questions, or comments. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast and let us know what you think. If you are interested in getting continuing education credit for your time listening, then you can head over to beyondtherapy.thinkific.com and learn all about our NBCC accredited continuing education options. 
Until next time, this is Dr. Candace Creesman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creesman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creesman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. I hear that cry.